So five years, Crossview Church, how about that, huh? Yeah, so cool. It's great to celebrate. Uh, just as your senior pastor, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness to Crossview and uh, your patience with me. As this five years ago started the senior pastor journey for me, uh, I learned, I learn all the time. I'm continuing learning, and I appreciate your encouragement, your love, as well as your patience as I make mistakes and go through this. Our staff is so excited to be here. Uh, our volunteers are excited to be here. We love you, Crossview Church, and there's nowhere I'd rather be. So thank you so much, and may God give us many more years until he returns, right? All right. So um, my family and I love going to the city of Chicago. Uh, my wife and I are originally from that area, and so we go down there often. We enjoy it. And when you're in the city of Chicago and you're walking around and that wind whips off Lake Michigan and comes through all the buildings and the areas and it gets super cold, one of the things you'll hear people say, especially those who are visiting from outside the area, the wind comes whipping through, and the first thing they usually say is, well, that's why they call it the... Windy City, right? But guess what? That's not why they call it the Windy City. Ah, I'm going to clue you in on a little Chicago fact. Chicago's not called the Windy City because of anything that has to do with climate or wind. It's called the Windy City because in the late 1800s, there were lots of political conventions coming into the city of Chicago, and a group of reporters said there's all these politicians coming in with hot air, and they began to call it the Windy City. So it was because of all the hot air politicians, not because of anything off the lake. There you go. Fact for the day. Now, that's just a silly, crazy fact that really doesn't mean much to life. But the principle of an illustration for us, there's a principle in, an illustration, in that illustration for us that is that we can't come to conclusions until we have all the facts, right? You don't want to come to conclusions until you have all the facts. And we as human beings are quick to come to conclusions, but we want to make sure we don't come to conclusions until we have all the facts, especially in the important things in life. There was a pastor and a theologian named A.W. Tozer who said, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. And so we want to be very, very careful when we come to conclusions about God. We want to get our facts and our sources from the right place, especially when we're thinking about God and we're thinking about heaven and today I'm excited that we get a glimpse of heaven from our scriptures this morning. We get a glimpse of heaven. We are going back to our series in the book of Revelation this morning uh, called The Lion, the Lamb, and the Lord. And we've covered what theologians call the first vision or the first cycle or the first section. There's seven kind of sections or visions in the book of Revelation, and we completed the first one. Uh, the first one ran from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 22. And uh, it covered the intro to the letter and the seven letters to the churches. You may have remembered us talking about that. And this morning we're starting the second vision in the book of Revelation. We're starting the second cycle that runs from chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 1. And everybody loves this section of Revelation. 
Everyone gets excited about this section of Revelation because in this section, there's crazy things like beasts and numbers and uh, marks. And as we launch this series, I hope you remember one of the things that I desired for us as a church as we dove into the book of Revelation, again, it's Revelation, not Revelations, right? As we dove into that book, I said that the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to be some cosmic puzzle for us to figure out the end times or to have some special knowledge over other Christians that we can hold over them. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to inspire within us the desire to worship God more. It's to inspire within us this desire to worship God. It's meant to open our eyes. And as I talked to you before, the context that this was written was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was really good at setting up false narratives. They said things like, the emperor is God. Domitian is God. And the Roman Empire is his kingdom. And that rules and reigns forever and ever. But that was a false narrative. That's not right. Jesus is Lord. And what John is doing in the book of Revelation is he's setting up truth to knock down all these counter-narratives that are coming out of the Roman Empire. And it's something that we can apply to ourselves today. So I'd like to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it up to Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, just turn to the back. You'll see it and go to the big number four, and you'll be right on target with where we're starting out. So now the camera pans out, and we see some amazing things. Let's look at the first two verses of Revelation chapter four. It says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. A couple things stand out as we launch into this vision that's similar to what we heard before. There's an open door and door was a theme we looked at last time. As well as there was this voice like a trumpet. Let me refresh your memory in Revelation chapter 1 when this whole thing started. John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying... So there's this voice like a trumpet, this trumpet call of God. And then it says right away that John was immediately in the spirit. Immediately in the spirit. That means there was a Holy Spirit inspired visionary experience where God revealed to John hidden mysteries. Gave him a glimpse of heaven and what is to come. John is transported to this place. Jesus says, come on up here. Let me show you something. And then it's time for us to hang on because he's going to show us something amazing. There's a heavenly view we're about to see here. Look at chapter, uh, verse 2 to 6. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, Stone, a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and on the thrones there were sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. 
Something like the sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. A lot's going on here. Remarkable vision of God in the center and the activity of heaven around his throne. So let's go through this so we understand what's happening here. First, verse 3. It's amazing to notice when he's talking about God, the one seated in the center, he doesn't use objects to describe it. He doesn't say, here's how this was set up. He was here, and this is how big it was here. Here's how wide it was here, how tall. No, no, he, he can't describe it. He's using radiant colors to try to describe what's happening. Because John's trying to describe something that's very difficult to describe. He's trying to describe the glory of God. How do you describe the glory of God in a way that gives it justice? And he said, I'm going to shift and just go with radiant colors. So he's describing this thing knowing that no matter what he says, it's not going to do justice to what he's seeing, but he gives it a shot. So he talks about jasper and carnelian and emerald and a rainbow to describe this amazing glory of God. Then he talks about the power that is displayed there in the heavenly place. And he uses analogies of lightning flashing and rumbles and peals of thunder to describe the power of God. He's like, there's nothing else really I can put into words to describe this, but here's what it's like. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be there in heaven? And remember, we talked about that the heaven that there is now where Jesus is and where God is, that, that's the temporary heaven, right? We talked about how there's going to be a new heaven and new earth when Jesus comes. So this is the temporary heaven where, where God is now. And, and if you go there, can you imagine what it's like to see the, the thunder and the power and the majesty of God? John's trying to point, uh, write it out so we can capture this. You know, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be so amazed and so blown away by what we see and experience that it's just going to be so far beyond anything that we can imagine now. Anything we can think. I think our best shot at picturing heaven in our mind right now will pale in comparison to what awaits us when we're there. And I think if we could crack into that and see what heaven is like now and see what's really happening, it would so radically change our lives and our, on earth today. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to say, God, I knew you were good, but I had no idea you were this good. Jesus, I knew you were powerful, but I had no idea you were this powerful. God, I knew you were amazing, but I had no idea you were this amazing. And if I knew that when I was on earth, it would have radically changed everything in terms of how I lived and carried out my life. Well, we see in this passage that God is not alone. There's others that are around the throne, and we want to dive into this and kind of get into the teaching aspect. So there's others that are there, but it's important for you to know as we're teaching and looking at this that though it's good others are there, we're going to explain why they're there, it's important to know that God doesn't need anyone else. God doesn't need anyone else. 
This is a theological concept called the aseity of God, that God is so sufficient in himself, he doesn't need others. And it's listed out in Acts 17, 25, where it says, neither is he God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath. He is God. He sustains himself. He doesn't need anyone else. But this amazing God loves to be with his creation. He loves to be in relationship with his creation because not only does God love you, and you need to know that, but God really, really likes you. And he wants to be with you. He doesn't need us, but because of who his heart is, he wants to be with us. And that's just an amazing thought. So we see there's these 24 thrones with 24 elders on, and they're dressed in white, which is a sign of purity. These 24 are pure before God. They have golden crowns, which symbolizes a conquering has taken place. They conquered something, and that's something we heard earlier in the first vision as well. These elders have been cleansed by God, and they have persevered, and they have conquered. Remember where it always say, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And to the one who conquers, I will give. These are those who have done that. Christians are called to persevere all the way to the end of our lives, no matter what. So who are these 24? Often the Bible talks about groups of 12. We see 12 happening throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we saw 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, we saw 12 apostles. So these 24 are representing both of these groups, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles. But what they symbolize, again, remember Revelation is all about symbols, what they symbolize is God's redeemed humanity around his throne. They're a symbol of the redeemed humanity. What we see here is the 24 elders are the saints of the Old Testament, the saints of the New Testament. They're united and worshiping God around the throne. And this isn't just a guess. Remember, one of the principles we have of learning what Scripture says is we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we let Revelation interpret Revelation. And we're going to see in Revelation 21, verse 12, where God describes this new heavens and the new earth where we will reign and rule forever, that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are inscribed on the gates, giving us 24. This is an amazing picture of God symbolizing he being with redeemed humanity, his global purpose fulfilled. God in his ultimate purpose, bringing many people back to himself and redeeming them around his throne. It's a symbol and picture of what is to come. Verse 5 says there's something else there. Before the throne, there's these seven fiery torches to represent the seven spirits. Now this is where we got to peel the layers. There's layers of symbols here, right? And this is what Revelation does to us. There's layers of symbols. And we, I don't know if you remember, but back in the first section, we talked about how the seven spirits were a symbol of the Holy Spirit, right? It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So now what we have is a symbol of a symbol. So we have these seven fiery torches, which are a symbol of the seven spirits, which are a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So basically he's saying the Holy Spirit is there around the throne with these 24 and God. And Jesus is there showing this to John. And you're saying, well, why didn't they just say the Holy Spirit's there? 
because it wasn't written with a Western mind like we have. We want everything in our Western context. Remember, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. And it was written to the audience that would grab that. And they loved symbols. And they loved what was happening. And so this is how God laid it out. So the Holy Spirit is present in this throne room with God and the 24 elders. The 24 elders represent all redeemed humanity. But there's more. Look at verse 6 to 8. Four living creatures covered with eyes in the front and in the back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. So there's these four living creatures with eyes all around them. Who are these four living creatures? Remember we talked about how Revelation pulls so much from the Old Testament into this book. This goes back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 4 to 8, where the four living creatures represent all the angels in heaven and their various hosts and sections. They're like an army, so they have ranks and they have sections, and they're all in heaven. And these four living creatures represent that. So in this vision, we see 24 elders created and redeemed humanity around the throne. We see four living creatures, which are all the angelic hosts. Angels are created by God as well, created in spiritual beings, and they're all around the throne. Now, what's with the eyes and the, and the different heads and the ox and the face like a man and all those kinds of things? Again, this is all symbolic, and they all have little meanings. Angels believe it or not, don't literally have wings. Angels, believe it or not, are not literally covered with eyes all over. These are symbolic things. They literally don't have eyes and wings, but they point to their spiritual realities. They have wings, meaning they can have the ability to move. And they have eyes, knowing that they have a lot of knowledge. And so when we read the Bible, we read it literally, but we read it understanding what the genre is, and this is apocalyptic language. Some people get tied up with this and say, well, I read the Bible literally, so they all must have eyes. That's not reading the Bible literally. That's reading the Bible literalistically. There's a difference. We have to understand what we're reading and what it's about. It's like when we see in Isaiah 55, where it says, all the trees of the field clap their hands. We know trees don't have hands. They don't clap. But some people say, oh, no, they do. It says in the Bible, I read it, so all trees must have clap their hands. You don't see it. No, no, that's not how God wants us to read Scripture. We have to understand what we're looking at, what the genre is. We're looking at poetic license. There's things happening. That's where we get to get to the real meaning of what's going on here. So these angels have knowledge and they're able to move. But what else is amazing is there's also this language of heaven that we see. 
There's this language of heaven. Look at uh, verse 8, uh, verse 8 and 9 again. Let's go to verse 9. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne and they say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. They are worshiping God, but they are worshiping him in a way that we have to grab an aspect or an attribute of God they're pulling forth is God is creator. God is Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty means he is the ruler and judge of all things. The ruler and judge of all things is not only the ruler and judge of all things, but here in this song we see he is the creator of all things. This song is saying of creation from the created and redeemed humans around the throne and the created angelic host all singing, celebrating their creator. That's what's happening here. They are acknowledging that life and being comes from him and him alone. Here we see a foundational thing that God is creator, and that is what is being said and worshipped before him 24-7. He is worshipped as the one who brought all things into being. All power is his. All glory is his. All honor is his. Praise and beauty of creation joined together. Now, some people would say, if God demands such praise, doesn't that mean he's some sort of egomaniac? Like, who is God that he declares and demands some, all this praise? Who does he think he is? Is he this ego-filled tyrant? Well, if he was human, he would be. But he's not human. He's God. Before all time, he was. And then he spoke into creation all things. And he can come and declare and say all worship is due him because it's true. He's the only living thing that can demand all worship and be just in receiving it. He's the only living thing that is worthy of all worship we have and it be totally just in giving him all the worship from our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength. This is God, our creator. As we go through the scripture, though, now we see there's a problem in heaven. Do you believe it? There's a problem in heaven. Look at verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. It says, then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? There's a scroll with writing in the front and the back, but there's seven seals keeping it tied, so we don't know what the scroll says. The first vision We had seven letters to seven churches. The second vision, we have seven seals. And the problem in heaven is we have this scroll with these seals. And who can open them? Who is worthy to open up 
this scroll to see what's inside? Well, you'll have to wait till after Mother's Day when we dive into Revelation chapter 5. But let me give you something to think about as I close. This vision of heaven was not meant just to inspire John, but it was meant for John to take and help believers understand their place in world history and in future events to come. It was also meant to remind them that while they live in this Roman Empire that feels very, very anti-Christian, that they need to remember that is not their ultimate home. It was meant to remind them that there's something so much greater that awaits the people of God who have given their lives to him. There's something that so much greater awaits those who call Jesus Lord and their ultimate allegiance needs to be with him and his kingdom, not in any earthly kingdom we would see. There's no hope in the political systems of this world. There's hope in the amazing kingdom of God because the one and only king rules and reigns forever and ever and ever. I'm not saying you don't engage in politics. You should. But if you're going to engage in politics, you start here in Revelation chapter 4, knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord and his kingdom will rule and reign forever. You don't start with let's make us a Christian nation. You start here with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and his kingdom will rule forever and ever and ever. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And we have to get that straight as believers living in this day and age. And I'm not saying we don't take the kingdom of God and his values and bring them into the world and into the places we live. We should do that. But we have to make sure our motivation for doing that is to carry out his kingdom. 290 years after the book of Revelation was written, guess what happened? The emperor of Rome became a Christian. The emperor at the time was Constantine, and Constantine became a Christian. And he declared that Christianity will be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And he decided to Christianize the whole Roman Empire. He said that all the teaching is going to have to come from Scripture, and we're going to have these Christian, we're going to have a Christian empire, a Christian nation. And you know what? When church historians look over the whole side of church history, they say that those years were some of the most ineffective years for the church and the gospel ministry. We don't I'm not saying we don't engage the world. I'm not saying we don't stand for religious liberties, but we have to go first place allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom. Because God wants his people to have a vision bigger than any geopolitical nation that exists on our earth. The vision of heaven. The vision of God. Does this vision of heaven challenge some of your assumptions? This vision of heaven affects our lives here today. And as we read this, it's meant to graciously and truthfully expand our vision because if you're like me, oftentimes we live with a very small vision of God. We live with a vision of God that's way too small. 
when our political candidate or political party doesn't win and we're completely devastated, then our God is too small. When we are constantly hindered by addictions and we're trying to fill and medicate pain and we get caught up into that, our vision of God is too small. When we are filled with anxieties and worries and concerns about this life, our vision of God is too small. When we feel the need to try to control people or control situations to make sure it has the outcome that we know will be okay, our vision of God is too small. When we feel like we must behave well in our own strength to get God's approval, our vision of God is too small and our understanding of the gospel is misconstrued. The current levels of worship in our lives probably do not accurately give God the justice of the worship he is due. Our purpose on earth as Christians is to continually grow in such a way that our vision from, of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the things of this world seem less and less and less. I don't know about you, but as we stand here across your church on our five-year anniversary, I pray that in the days that come, that the God, by a gift of his grace and the Holy Spirit, will enable our hearts to expand the vision of God in our lives, where the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. You are holy. You are worthy. You are good. And even when we don't understand what you're doing, we can declare these things because the reason we don't understand is because you are God and we are not. And so God, I ask that you would expand our hearts and minds to know you in deeper ways. God, we thank you for the faithfulness to this church in the last five years. And we ask in the next five that you would draw us ever so close to Jesus, your son, that we would be transformed and set free in his presence. We yield our hearts to you now and ask you to move. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.